We're going to be in two primary passages as we continue our study on holy habits. And today we're looking at the holy habit of generosity. And let me just say right up front, there is no such thing as a mature Christian who is not also generous. And we're going to see that laid out by Christ himself. First in Matthew chapter 6, that's page 685 in your pew Bibles. And then in a few minutes, we're going to go to uh, Paul's letter to a young pastor, Timothy, giving him advice as to how to preach to his congregation about money. If you're guests here today, I'm, I'm basically affirming all your stereotypes because we're talking about money here today. But uh, stay with us. Jesus actually had a lot to say about the subject. Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to begin reading at verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? And so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of God. Every time uh, someone preaches on money, there's always somebody that calls foul, and who could blame you for it? The media and news is full of cult leaders and pastors who are living in the lap of luxury because of the giving of a gullible congregation. People abuse their position for power. I'm reminded of Paul's words when he reminded one of the churches he wrote to in the New Testament. You will remember, he said, that when we came to you, we did not come as those peddling the word of God for profit. But we came in fear and trembling. That's the proper posture for those of us that represent Jesus and bring his word. May God allow me to have that posture. 
But because of that negativity, many people will just avoid talking about the subject altogether. And here's the problem with that. You can't look at the teachings of Jesus and not have to teach on it. Did you know Jesus spoke about money more than he spoke about love? More than he spoke about heaven and hell combined? 16 of his 38 parables were about money and possessions. In the Gospels, which are the four books in the Bible that are about Jesus' life and ministry, listen to this, one out of every 10 verses is about money. Scripture offers about 500 verses about prayer, less than that about faith, 2,000 verses about money. Startling, isn't it? So the fact is, Pastors fail their congregations when they don't preach the whole word. I would fail you if I didn't help you understand how Jesus intended us to deal with our money. I would be failing to teach God's word. And so we're gonna go at it today. That sounded threatening, didn't it? (laughs) Didn't mean that. Let's call it a Christian crash course on cash. (laughs) Say that five times fast. I had to practice that. First of all, you might wanna ask yourselves why? Why does Jesus in particular seem so focused on that? Actually, he answers it right in this teaching. Let's say this together. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So like Jesus, to answer that question, are we really talking about money, I'm going to say yes, but we're not really talking about your money. Jesus wasn't really talking about your money. We're talking about your faith, talking about your worship, and we're actually talking about who owns your heart. You see, Jesus knew who his real competition was for our worship. It was our stuff, and he loved us enough to go after that and to tell us you can't have it both ways. You know, the American culture, some of the churches that are packed this morning have sold out completely to the God of money. They peddle the word of God for profit. They say Jesus is the means to money, and so Jesus is just a means to what they truly worship. We have just today to talk about this subject, and with all of that body of teaching, I think I can help you get a hold of an overview of what Scripture teaches. The Bible talks about three attitudes over and over again that are to shape a Christian's attitude towards their possessions. And then we're going to talk about four principles that come from Old Testament practices that translate as principles into the New Testament. And I think if we do that together and at the end with some helpful steps for you, uh, we'll do a good job at least representing this huge subject in the Bible. Why? Because it's probably next to Jesus, the biggest subject in all of our lives. So we need spiritual help with it. And so let's start with three basic things that the Bible teaches in relation to how you and I are to view our stuff. The first is contentment. That's certainly what Jesus is going after in Matthew chapter six. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your clothes. Don't worry about tomorrow. That pretty much covers it. And why are we not to worry? Because your father will take care of you. 
I grew up in a home where I understand that dynamic, and I'm very grateful for that. It occurs to me that when I think of my life growing up, I never thought twice about whether there would be lunch. Sometimes lunch with five kids on a pastor's salary, my mom turned it into magic, fried dough, because you can make bread cheap, and that was a treat for us, but that was a, that was a budget meal, you know? Didn't think of it that way. The fact is, because of the loving relationship that I had in my parents, I had full contentment growing up. And it carried into my view of God. Some of you, I know stories here. I know of one person here that shared their story that they don't actually ever remember having breakfast their whole life growing up. You didn't grow up with that sense of security. And so you translate that into your spiritual life. And so now that you have things, whatever amount it is, even if it's less than what would make you comfortable, you hold on to that as your source of contentment because you weren't taught to be content in a father who says, you're my kid. I'm gonna take care of you. Here's a good working definition of the biblical idea of contentment. Well-being and satisfaction in God who lovingly provides, not in what he has provided. Vit and I have been uh, on this spiritual journey a long time. We've been through some incredibly difficult seasons of our lives that also were very difficult financially. And there were, there were times where we wondered how we were gonna get through the year, let alone be able to plan for our future. And it's amazing, we can look back and say, we didn't really need to worry. It's not like we're living in the lap of luxury. But God has been faithful. And we look back and we go, why were we so worried? It's one thing to be prayerful and to be planning, and, but why were we worried? We were in the hands of Daddy, Abba Daddy, our Heavenly Father. That's contentment. John D. Rockefeller is famous for having been asked at one point when he was the most wealthy man in the world, how much is enough for you to feel satisfied? And his famous answer is the next million. Now you may know that there was a time in his life when he became very ill. The more he gained, the less contentment he had, the less security he had. And there was a dramatic spiritual change in his life and he began to give away what he had. And that's when he actually experienced contentment. He learned that it wasn't in amassing great wealth. Turn with me now to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul is writing to Timothy, who's a young pastor, his protege. And uh, we get to listen in on his training to this young pastor. And um, towards the end, he's teaching him how to instruct people about their resources. Begin at verse three. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, obviously we're coming in at the end of something that Paul has taught him, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. 
Well, what he's saying is when we turn our faith into a means to our own prosperity, prosperity is what we're worshiping, not Jesus. And the result is dissatisfaction that presents itself in all the conflict and the dissatisfaction. You know what I'm saying? People who are just, you're either content or contentious. Wish I'd thought about that earlier. I'd put it on a slide. That's pretty good. That's what he's saying here. But then he goes on and he says, and this is what I want you to focus on. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Instead of focusing on great gain for contentment, finding contentment elsewhere is what really is great gain. That's what Rockefeller found out when he let go of the path of contentment in, in things. And then he goes on, verse seven, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. <laughs> There's a story of a, of a man who was dying and he told his wife, when I die, he was very wealthy, when I die, I wanna take everything with me, so I want you to put all my money in the casket with me. So uh, at the funeral, the widow's sitting there with a box in her lap and before they close the casket, she takes the box and she puts it, puts it in the casket. They close it and a friend who knew the situation said to her, you didn't give him his money, did you? She said, I'm an honorable, honest woman. I gave him every last penny. I wrote a check, and I put it in the <laughs> For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. I'll paraphrase that. You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul, right? But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. For those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, this is not a message against possessions. We see throughout Scripture of people that God had blessed with great wealth. Paul said, and this is really key to understanding contentment, Paul said, I have learned the secret of contentment in all circumstances. And he lists difficulties and joys. He, he talks about sorrow and celebration. He talks about times of prosperity and times of poverty. But it's the pursuit of it. It's the, it's the worship of it. It's the sacrifice of other things in the name of it. And that's why he goes on and says, verse 10, it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. Some people are so eager for money they have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You could sit and think about people that in the pursuit of that next paycheck were one time walking with the Lord and are now nowhere near him, right? Is it worth that? Is it worth gaining the whole world and losing your soul, as Jesus said? What, what profit is that? Learning contentment in all circumstances. You know how much you understand what it means to be Abba's child based on how much you're worrying about your well-being. The second attitude that we are to have about our money is a word called stewardship. We take that from several parables in, the, in, in Jesus' teaching where he talks about stewards and the clear indication there is about who owns our money. We're a very diverse group and celebrate the fact that we can have different opinions about things even politically. 
and uh, still be one in Jesus and be gracious to one another. So I mean, there's people here who politically are on the right and you say, it's my money. I should get to spend it the way I want. Some of you are on the opposite side, the progressive side, and you say, no, it's our money. We should share. Here's the biblical truth. You're both wrong. It's God's money. Everything in heaven on earth belongs to him. Here's a startling verse from Deuteronomy. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you even the ability to produce wealth. Did you hear that? Even the skills that you use in order to say, I earned it, weren't yours. God even gave that to you. So stewardship says, I am responsible for what God has put in my hand to manage it for his purposes. That's stewardship. Do you see yourself as an owner or a steward? An owner says, my stuff belongs to me. A steward says, my stuff belongs to God, and he has temporarily entrusted it to me. An owner says, I can spend my stuff any way I want. A steward says, I need to use God's stuff to advance his purposes and desires. An owner says, I am not accountable to anyone about my stuff. A steward says, I will give account to God for how I spend his stuff. That's a, that's a pretty radical shift. Imagine if you got control of that idea and understood. You know what that would mean for a lot of us? We would stop debating whether or not we should give to God. And we'd stop saying, well, let me pay my bills first and see if there's anything left over. How much of my stuff should I give to God? And we'd humbly ask the question, how much of God's stuff do I dare keep? (laughs) And spend on things first for me when God has purposes and needs and and people whose lives need to be touched and... uh, pastor friend of mine used to say, I believe God has already given us everything we need to accomplish all that he's put in front of us. The problem is, he put it in your pockets. And we are stewards of it and will answer for it. The third attitude is generosity. Let's continue in 1 Peter chapter 6, verse 17 now. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them instead to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. And I love this line, so that they will take hold of life that is truly life. That's the life that maybe Rockefeller finally laid hold of when he stopped striving for merely life built on great gain. He let go of that and he entered into life that is truly life. After all, isn't our pursuit of things all ultimately the pursuit of security and contentment? And don't you see why Jesus goes after that? Because it's a false path to that. And he doesn't want you to be robbed 
of it. Now, there's a word in this verse that would allow many of us sitting here to think, well, this teaching doesn't apply to me. What word is that? Rich. Yeah, you see, you already saw it and you already, you already checked out. I'm not rich. I'm struggling. And this is a time where I, I need to be sensitive and careful here because we are coming from many different places. There are some of you that God has entrusted with tremendous resources. And there are others of you that are making it because you're getting assistance. I know we're coming from different places, but I want to share with you how I think many of us here, where we place ourselves in terms of our standard. And I'm going to use this little pyramid here as an illustration. So that gold area, my income, is where most of us tend to see ourselves. We know there's people below us who struggle, but we know above us, we we can pretty much name the people that are above us. And they're the wealthy ones because they have more than we do. Now, that's our perspective. I want to show you God's perspective. Now, you might even be thinking, where did I go in this pyramid? I'm going to show you right now. That's you. That's you up there. Go to a a website called globalrichlist.com and type in your adjusted income on your 1040 for this year. And you'll see that the vast majority of us, even those of you that are middle to low income, are in the upper 1% of global income. Now, I'm not saying life's easy. When you earn more, you live in a culture that asks for more. I, I get that. But according to God's perspective, who is the rich in this verse? Say me. For most of us, that's true. It's us. If we can attain those attitudes, I think it adjusts a lot of our decisions. But let me talk to you about the ministry or the discipline of giving that ought to flow out of these attitudes. And the way I'm going to do that is just quickly address four different types of giving that were part of the Old Testament nation of Israel. What I'm going to suggest to you is that much of the traditions and laws and worship of the Old Testament was important for the nation of Israel, but we now know after Jesus that a lot of it was illustrative. It was designed to point us to eternal principles, and that's true of how God directed the nation of Israel to give. We don't give like they did. They gave out of obligation. We give out of gratitude. They gave because they had to. We we give because we get to. (laughs) But the way they were taught to give carries forward, not necessarily into literal practices, but into principles that we need to exercise for our giving. The first one was the tithe. 10% of income and of produce went directly to the temple. The New Testament principle that translates into that is we need to give as a discipline, giving systematically and strategically a determined and fixed percentage will always mark the life of a committed and spiritually mature follower of Jesus. Give as a discipline. Dad joined the family for Easter service. He wasn't a really faithful church attendee, and the son was watching him, and the offering plate came by, and he threw a dollar in, and On the way home, he was complaining about the volume of the music and the length of the sermon, and the son said to him, I don't know, Dad, it was a pretty good show for a buck. (laughs) 
I got a million of them, but I'll spare you all of them from here on out, I promise. The second practice in the Old Testament was first fruits. First fruits was when they gave God the best off the top of their harvest, of their produce. If, if they worked in skilled labor and earned income from that labor, they gave always to God first. And the New Testament principle that transfers is simply that. Give to God first, not last. Now, I'm guessing that there are those of you that attend this church faithfully that actually don't give anything. And right now, you can't imagine starting. Yeah, you've made decisions about how you spend your money. Let's go back to the tithe. The beauty of the tithe is that people, everybody gives, but they only give according to their ability. I love that. But yet at the same time, because it's a percentage base, everybody gives the same. Some of you, because of stage of life, college students, or those of you that are saving up for a house, or those of you that are on assistance, you think, well, I'll start giving to the Lord when I'm in a better place or when I've achieved these things. And here's the thing. If, if you're not giving now with what you have, first of all, you're not being obedient to God. You should give at whatever level you are and give what you can. You should all be doing that. Tithe should go, frankly, to your church. There are other givings we'll talk about, but you should be doing that. And if you're not doing it now, there'll always be the next thing that you're saving up for and you'll never get around to it. And some of you have been playing that game for 30 years. You still haven't gotten around to it. And think about all that God could do if you weren't spending his stuff. So that's why the first fruits matters. God gets off the top. Here's a good question to ask. Do you pay your bills first and then give to God only if there's money left over? Do you pay your bills first, then if there's money left over, say, hey, I can buy this or buy that, and really don't even think about giving to God. God gets first. Third practice in the Old Testament were what we call offerings. That was a very distinct type of giving for the people of God when together a need was presented that they together gave over and above their discipline giving towards that cause. Maybe a city had been suffering and the nation together would come and they'd give over and above their regular giving to that. And the New Testament principle is give extra. <laughs> Question you should ask is, do you pray for God to meet needs in people's lives or that the church presents but don't personally consider yourself part of the solution and, and not give? Do you look for ways to do more than the minimum in your giving? The fourth type of giving in the Old Testament is a word that most of us are used to hearing in like a Charles Dickens movie or novel, a pauper on the street asking for, who knows the word, alms. That type of spontaneous giving when we are presented personally with a great need. And the principle for that, for us, as Jesus followers, is give with your heart. Always be available to God in, in your day-to-day -day life as you run into those in need. See it as God's leading. Now here are some other questions you might want to ask yourself as part of uh, trying to develop this, this holy habit 
that God has called all of us to of generosity. Do you spend more on vacation than you give to God in a year? Do you spend more on extras for yourself, gym, hair, clothing, jewelry, entertainment, and not give to God? Do you spend your money on home and car upgrades when you haven't given generously to God out of that extra? Do you consider yourself at a stage in life or standard of living that gives you a pass on giving to God? So now, let me quickly run through five baby steps in terms of moving towards this. I know that we live in a society that seems to demand more and more and more of us. How do we put him truly first in these areas? Because if he's not first in this area, chances are that's an indicator of where your heart goes in a lot of areas. That's why Jesus talked about it so much. So let me just quickly suggest five steps for you to think about. First, take a personal inventory of your time, where you're using your talents and abilities, and then about where you're spending your stuff. Maybe go to the room that has the stuff in your home you love the most. Uh, Maybe your closet, maybe the man cave. Stand in the middle of it, and as you itemize those things, maybe turn in a circle, ask yourself these questions. Is this a want or a need? And here's the truth. If you can answer anything as this is a want, you actually qualify for the basic definition of being rich. Because you know what the basic definition in Scripture of being rich is? Having extra. Take an inventory. Second, trim excess from your life. This may include not going on that elaborate vacation that you're so sure that you deserve. It could be cable TV for you. It might be your entertainment budget. Look where you can reduce spending on your wants. And then three, give that extra to God. This is at least a start. Ask yourself, what could I give if I stop seeing my wants as needs? Whom can I bless? How could and should I use this for God's purposes? There's great joy when we do that and we see lives changed as a result. Four, set up a recurring transaction with God. Sort of a modern concept. How many of you do online banking? Sure, and you've got all sorts of things that you don't have to worry about because they're all set up. They're automatic payments. Let me ask a question. Have you done that with your giving? I struggled with routine generosity Most of my married life, kids' bills, medical bills, college bills, like you, I've had those hard decisions. And then when online banking came on, one of the very first things I did was put together a transaction of my determined, off-the-top gift to God that nothing else was going to touch. And at first, like anything, like when you get your first apartment or buy your first house or your first car, and at first it's really tight and you don't know how you're going to fit it in, what happens eventually? Everything settles out. You learn to spend what you have left so that you can have that other. Giving's the same thing. And you know what? It's amazing. 
we have been able to cover all the things I was afraid I couldn't if I gave that away first. I don't care how you do that, if it's an envelope in your drawer or an electronic version, commit. And then fifth, this is big, test God by engaging in radical generosity. Generosity is one of the few spiritual disciplines that God actually makes a promise to us about. There's this amazing verse in the book of Malachi that we're going to close with. The prophet Malachi is speaking for God to the nation of Israel that has completely abandoned the house and the work of God. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that means the temple, that there may be food in my house. And let's say this together. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Then all the nations will call you blessed. For yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Notice the qualities there. This isn't a promise of financial return on your investment. That flies in the face of everything we've taught today. So I'm not asking you to plant a seed of faith. I'm telling you, you put God first, that becomes the last thing you worry about. Because his blessings, his contentment, his work in your life is your wealth. And your life won't be able to contain it. Isn't that why we hold on to our money so hard? And don't you see that that's the very thing keeping you from attaining it? Hmm. Think about what God could do if we all stepped up. Just think about that. Just think about it. And think about the joy you could experience. So there it is. I hope you feel loved even though I wanted to speak for God's word on this subject today. Let's commit ourselves to it. Father, not an easy subject. Never is. It's the thing that competes for our heart. It's the thing that dominates all of our lives because it's how we make ends meet. It's how we care for the people we love. It's, it's how we fulfill our dreams. And, and we see today how subtle it is to be worshiping that when you call us to worship you. And part of that worship is trusting you, honoring you, obeying you. Father, I pray that there'll be those today that will dare to jump in the deep end of generosity and laying hold of life that is truly life. Say amen. Amen. amen.